I don't use it. I don't pay attention to it. So I guess it's, it's already banished as far as I'm concerned. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. So I was wondering how you feel about the word so. You know, I think people get annoyed by it when it is used in a certain way. Uh, the overuse of that word at the beginning of the sentence. So could you give me an example? <laughs> sure I can. You just gave me one. <laughs> uh, it's something that is pretty common, and I use it myself all the time to transition into something else, or if things are just going a certain way and you want to change the topic or move on to something else, it's very simple to start a sentence off with just... So I'm wondering what you think about X. And uh, I just think that it's a it's a very common one, but I also think that it could be a nuisance one, especially if it's done in a certain way, like the elongated. So I was wondering, and when it really draws attention to itself. Of course, that could be a person nervous about bringing something up. Exactly. Yeah, there could be a, an amount of just nerves built into it where you're trying to get yourself warmed up to the idea of changing into that subject. But the reason I'm bringing it up is uh, it was drawn to my attention, a, a list that gets made every year. It gets generated every year, and it's out of Lake Superior University. And that was the one word that they picked as a word to banish. They have a list that they collect uh, people's peeves and they get submitted and over the course of the year they determine a list of words and at the top of that list last year 2015 was the word so and that was the one that was that irked people the most i was just wondering you know what we had to say about that well i don't know about banished i mean if i got really upset with it and told somebody they were using so too much they might call me a dirty so-and-so but um what they seem to be mostly annoyed by is just the usage that we were referring to a moment ago is beginning a, a statement was so uh, it's just a sort of uh, spoken throat clearing uh, it's just a way of uh, okay let's let's talk about this or it could be in reply to something like um I think I have another appointment that day, so that means you don't want to come to my birthday. <laughs> so that was in other words, so it can have that kind of function too. I think it can work in a lot of different ways. And one of the other ways that they referred to it on that list is, uh, I am so down with this. <laughs> I'm so happy. And um, if you're a strict logical person, you might say, well, where's the that? I am so happy that I'm uh, going to give you a big kiss. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's just implied. So, well, how much? Just so much. <laughs> and it's just sort of open-ended. Sure. It, it gets used as one of those wobbly intensifiers as substitute for very, which itself is vague. Um, 
it's going to be impossible to banish these, but certainly if we are doing some thoughtful speech or some thoughtful writing, we might want to be aware of that. You know, I think in writing, more of a problem. I would bet that if you just recorded people's speech and tracked the number of times that they used so at the beginning of a statement and then examined texts written by the same person to see how many times they started this written sentence with so, you'd find a lot fewer. Mm-hmm. Now, on the list that came from last year, there were a few of them. As long as we're talking about problems with the word banishment, uh, ones that I don't think I have any inclination whatsoever to want to banish. One of them was the phrase price point, which I always interpreted to mean the point at which you set a price where it is attractive to buy, but it is not so low that it looks like just a bargain basement price. Well, you could have various price points, which makes perfectly logical sense to me. So there are points on a graph and you're saying this price point corresponds to a particular quality or level of complexity of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, banish, you know, I think they're being cutesy with this. The school, which is uh, Lake Superior State University, 41 years has been doing this. I mean, nobody ever pays any attention to that school otherwise, but uh, it gets pretty good publicity every year. And if they just used a list like commonly overused words or words we'd like to see less of, they wouldn't get so much publicity. But by saying they're banishing them, (laughs) it generates this sort of fake excitement and mm-hmm. people who are looking for something to fill their columns uh, say, oh, well, let's throw this in and make a few comments on it. And of course, people who are professional writers, that is, journalists, are always thinking about language and how to use it, what might be overused or inexact usage. So this kind of thing just really attracts them. Uh, the New York Times has Philip Corbett, who periodically puts out notices of of language that he thinks has gotten overused in the Times pages. And sometimes it's things which he thinks are just um, faulty uses. Other times they're inexact, um, but sometimes they're just tired. He says, we've been using this particular phrase a lot lately. Why don't we give it a rest? And that's not banishing, but it's commenting on things. And the fact that Corbett's post, and you can just look up if you uh, have access to the New York Times online, just type in Philip Corbett and you'll get his comments. And they're often very interesting. He also uh, lately has been putting up examples of really good writing that he admires in the Times. But uh, he doesn't get a fraction of the publicity that this banished list gets just because the word banish is so extreme and sensational. Yes, it is. Uh, after 41 years, though, I'd Still don't even want to banish that one. (laughs) But price point, I think, still has a useful function. And I think people have this idea that it's redundant in some way, that things have a price, not a price point. But it defines something a little more exactly than just using the word price. Oh, yeah. It doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think there's generally a reaction on a lot of people's parts to uh, unusual language usages that come out of business. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. There's a lot of those. And there is a bias against that, where uh, if it's perceived to be getting used by Madison Avenue or 
uh, it's advertising speak or corporate speak. I think it tends to be uh, automatically people bristle, but it's not necessarily something that we need to be bothered by or that it is it's perceived to be meaningless, but we don't need to necessarily think about it as meaningless. Let's see what the function is first. Well, often terms that spring up in business get absorbed in the politics and spread that way. I think grow the economy probably developed that way. Mm-hmm. Another word on here that we talked about recently when we were talking about terms used to analyze literature, and that was the word problematic. All right. And that one is deemed a corporate academic weasel word (laughs) on the Urban Dictionary. It's problematic. Well, okay, um, maybe the word problematic is a little problematic, but I'm not sure that it has no function. You know, I just remembered after we finished last week's broadcast, uh, another term used in literary studies that I find problematic, and that's cultural studies. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's still around. It was very hot at one time and pretty much dominated the entire sphere. Uh, and I should have been using that term when I was doing a lot of the earlier episode. But uh, cultural studies sounds um, like you're studying culture, right? Well, as applied to literature, what does it mean? Well, what is the cultural background of the writer? What is the context culturally in which the work was written what does it tell us about attitudes in the culture all those kinds of things but it sounds more neutral than it really is because it's used exclusively by leftists and so it's always in terms of a critique of things that leftists don't like so it's one of those words it's used to sound more neutral than it is and that came to my attention when i was teaching a graduate seminar And I had a a really brilliant group of students, including one guy, very bright, but very conservative, who wound up, in fact, becoming a um, conservative political speechwriter. And he said, is there such a thing as conservative cultural studies? (laughs) Took me back for a minute. And I thought, well, why not? If you wanted to apply political analysis from a conservative point of view to literature, there's no logical reason why you couldn't do that. And it's just illuminated for me how non-neutral that field really was, that there's this assumption that the only people who can peer behind the curtain and see what's really going on in literature are people with a leftist slant. Uh, The people on the right are the ones that are deluded. So if we're doing cultural studies, it must be that we're doing something that is progressive in some way. Yeah, interesting. So that one is a little problematic. And uh, But let's get back to this list here because we have a couple more I want to focus on. One thing is these neologisms, uh, words that get created to describe something that did not exist before. I think people bristle on those also. Uh, is kind of a knee-jerk reaction against those. Well, don't we have a word around already that describes this? But uh, one of the words that appeared on here that I didn't understand, and maybe you could help me figure out why this would bother people, is the word vape. Uh Uh, It's a new activity. Um, Now, people don't like cigarette smoking, and I understand that. 
uh, and people probably don't like vaping either, and I understand that. But the word itself to describe the activity, if we take it away, what are we going to use to replace it? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I don't know. I think people are confusing their uh, repugnance of the idea with the repugnance to the word. Mm-hmm. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's short. It's an abbreviation. And, of course, it takes an abbreviation of vapor, which is a noun, turns it into a verb, not an uncommon pattern at all in English. It doesn't particularly bother me. I was very interested to read the other day that the... Uh, percentage of Americans that are smoking has dropped to an all-time low very rapidly in recent years. Some of that can be attributed to people switching to vaping, but evidently most of it not. Mm -hmm. So I think this is not the time to be getting all alarmed about it. There's a lot of other issues (laughs) about vaping that bother people, but they don't have to do with language, and I don't want to bother talking about them. Well, okay, let me just read off the remaining items on the list, and let me ask you one last question on it before we move on to possibly a happier topic of words that we need to uh, bring back into the language. I don't know if that's going to be happy or not, but we'll try it. We'll give it a, a whirl. But I have some other words on the banished words list, and I'll just run down the, that list, and you can let me know if there's one of them that truly is uh, personally a nuisance to you. So we have the word conversation. Oh, yes. That one I'd like to have a conversation about. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ever since the um, controversy surrounding police shootings of black victims, um, there's been a huge upsurge in the use of conversation to say we need to have a conversation about race. In other words, you need to have a conversation about this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's an, an old cliche that the last thing a man wants to hear from his wife is we need to have a conversation. But mm. <laughs> usually is we need to talk. <laughs> um, but the conversation just seems odd as a usage here. It seems to obscure what's really going on. It could mean so many different things. Have people never talked about race before? No, does it mean that every person has to have a conversation with every other person about race? Does every white person need to have a conversation with a black person or several? Um, is it really a conversation two-way, or is it a way of saying, I want you to really listen to what I'm saying and pay close attention to it. You have a lot to learn. I already understand how your mind works, but I want you to understand what's going on in my experience. That isn't a conversation. And even if uh, if you could get, say, 51% of the American people to talk intensively about their racial feelings and biases and so on, would that improve matters? Um, it strikes me that with Trump, one of the phenomenon is that he's having a conversation about these delicate issues of prejudice and so on. But he's not doing it delicately. His conversation is saying, hey, stop telling me to shut up and use polite terms and stuff. I'm just going to say how I feel. Well, that's one way of having a conversation. You're being very forthright, but you're also deliberately humiliating, embarrassing, and just annoying other people. Conversation isn't necessarily uh, fruitful. It's not necessarily a good thing. So I think what is going on on the parts of minority uh, minority spokespeople or people who see themselves as part of a minority is that 
you're not hearing what we're saying. You need to understand our experience better. And I think that's probably true. I'm just not sure that conversation is the right label for what they really want to happen. But on the other hand, if you are putting it out as an alternative to the word debate, I mean, neither one of them, I think, hits the mark. I think I kind of agree with you about the word conversation as this uh, sort of ambiguous idea, whereas it's it's not a debate. It is something closer to a conversation than a debate. And I'm not sure that this is the really fruitful way to get people over their prejudices. There's been a lot of research lately that shows that the more people know someone fairly closely um, who is of the same race or uh, of a different sexual orientation than they generally approve of or or whatever, something that they tend to be prejudiced against in other people, if they get to know one or two people like that and work with them, they tend to overcome their prejudices. It's been pretty definitively proven, I think, that shows that we can see it operating in politics right now in, in terms of gay rights and trans rights with politicians who are very conservative coming out and saying, well, I know I always said that I, I didn't believe in gay marriage, but, you know, my son came out and uh, he wants to marry his boyfriend and I see how much they're in love and you know, I've changed my mind on this. I've evolved. It seems to me that rather than just a lot of talk going on, uh, which may or may not be fruitful, uh, action and contact is much more important. There have been some experiments in business where you put together teams of people who normally aren't put together, like introducing more women into the mix in a team that's working at an administrative level, and it can change the whole tenor of the um, project and really has a powerful effect on people's minds. I think one of the real problems with identity politics, as it's sometimes perverted, especially in the colleges, is uh, some people take it as a reason to retreat back only into their own little world and identify only with their own type. Sometimes it's important to do that for a while, to give yourself some, some roots, to feel safe, to feel relaxed, but it's important to reach out too and uh, contact others on the other side, and not necessarily the people that are most likely to disagree with you, which is what the conversation invitation seems to imply. Mm -hmm. So we need less talk and more action. I think we can agree on that anyway. Yeah. Um, some other words that showed up here, I'll just run down. Stakeholder, secret sauce, you know that, break the internet, <laughs> break the internet, okay, walk it back, yeah, yeah. presser, Manspreading, another neologism, uh, giving me life, as opposed to saying it makes me laugh, and physicality, as applied to some physical specimen, some athlete, the physicality. Are any of those words uh, jumping out at you that we need to go over, or can we just put them in the category of um, eh, interesting? Interesting people are irked about those, but uh, they're not really. They're just trendy. 
Secret sauce strikes me as one that's kind of lost its roots. Who was it that had the secret sauce? It was McDonald's. Was it McDonald's that had the secret sauce? I thought it was one of the others. Yeah, they had the secret sauce. Yeah, it was a sort of a mayonnaise ketchup. It was Thousand Island dressing, maybe. Yeah, that, which reminds me when I I had an association over several years with a Russian science fiction scholar fan, uh, uh, Vladimir Gakov. And we uh, traveled together, and I got him invited to the United States, and we went on a lecture tour together talking about our nuclear war and fiction research. And uh, he took him out for his first dinner at a conference in Florida, and he fell in love with this special sauce, (laughs) his ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) He'd never seen it before. He thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Now I'm backpedaling a little bit because maybe it wasn't called secret sauce for McDonald's. Maybe it was called special sauce. I'm going to walk it back and say I'm not sure if secret sauce actually was the term that was applied by McDonald's, come to think of it. They called it a special sauce. But I think secret sauce may have been introduced just by the people in general, just calling the sauce that goes on a burger the secret sauce, the one that doesn't get revealed, the special recipe. But uh, are you tired of using that metaphorically to just generally apply it to things? That... Well, I, I don't use it. I don't pay attention to it, so I guess I'm... <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty neutral. It's, okay. it's already banished as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay. Well, when I hear it, I don't necessarily uh, bristle much, but uh, I don't use it either. Yeah, you were going to talk about stakeholder, though. Yeah, that's one that's being used a lot. And um, it's interesting. It can be used in a lot of ways. And in the business world, it can mean um, that in a particular business, you have the customers, you have the employees, you have the administration, um, the bosses, you have the investors, and they each are stakeholders. And uh, how much power each has or influence on the others. Um, I mean, usually the word stakeholder is used in a, a fairly positive way. And it's meant to say, let's get all the people who have a stake in this to be sure that they get their fair share of the influence. And of course, in business, uh, one of the things that's been talked about a lot is that the boards of a lot of these large corporations keep voting huge bonuses to executives who have actually not done a good job or even in the process of getting fired. And they give all this money to these guys to get rid of them. And yet that's not benefiting anybody else. It's not benefiting the other employees in the organization. There's less money over to pay them well. It's not benefiting the consumers of the company because prices may have to be raised. It's not benefiting the stock owners um, who are supposedly the stakeholders whose interests are most to be served in modern corporate business because it actually damages the price of the stock that they may own. It leaves less to be given to them as profits. So um, there's a lot of discussion about why exactly this takes place. And so stakeholder comes up. But you find it now much often in the nonprofit world, too, um, where you would talk about uh, some decision. Well, we're getting ready to build this park here, but there's a lot of stakeholders. 
Um, there are uh, large corporations which would like to build a, a business in this location instead. Uh, there's the people who are living there, mostly retired now, uh, who will have to give up their homes and probably not be able to find other affordable housing. Um, there's the children in the area who need a playground to play in. And so the, they're stakeholders and you have to take into account all these different groups. Um, so it seems to me can certainly be useful if it's used without any particular thought where you're i don't know i haven't noticed it being particularly overused but i guess once you get sensitized to a word it can have an annoying effect but i think it mostly has a positive effect of saying let's think about all the people who are affected by this particular decision or problem yeah, exactly. As long as it's useful and used thoughtfully, it doesn't, in and of itself, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah, not problematic. Not problematic. And I think that could be an overarching theme for many of these terms. Are any of these others jumping out at you as needing to be treated at all? No, not really. Wait, we'll have a link to the Lake Superior State University site where people can go down this list from last year and look at the collected list from all the years of words that are to be banished. Um, and uh, as much as we have enjoyed shooting down some of these, uh, if you're interested in words and language and how language gets used, it's still an interesting phenomenon in and of itself to see what words are irksome to people, even if they're not irksome to you personally. Right? You know, it's uh, it's just part of the whole package. Well, Paul, you know, I had thought we might get onto another project, uh, the Wayne State University project that is devoted to words that they collect that people would like to see come back. But I think we might have to save that for another time. Uh, we've, I, I think, treated this one pretty well, and it's about time to wrap it up. So I'll say thank you. Yes, thank you, Tom. Talk to you later. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.